0: You're able to spend some time with us again on Chin 97.9 just before we turn it back uh, to Ernie Tannis and his special guest on uh, part two of the ADR program for this Tuesday. It is the 8th of December. I can tell you that there is, yes, some snow flurries in the forecast, but uh, we have our fingers crossed for tomorrow that it won't be as, uh, as heavy as originally anticipated. Currently, minus three degrees in the sunshine. We'll have the forecast in detail for you coming up right after uh, part one of the show.
1: Welcome to the Alternative Dispute Resolution Weekly Show on Chin Radio 97.9 FM, heard worldwide over the Internet at ChinRadioOttawa.com. Here we are today, back on uh, December 8th, 2009, on our show with uh, Professor Julian D. Payne on Family Law. ADR supporting our children. How does it work? Welcome back to the studio today, Julian. Thank you. Morning. As we heard in yesterday's show, with a really fine, like family law general introduction on how family law works in Canada, uh, some of the distinctions in Quebec. um, We are going to follow up now and focus in on today's part two on the uh, the laws concerning children. I have in front of me two books by Julian. That's J-U-L-I-E-N, Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, and Marilyn Payne, and a book on Canadian family law, third edition, which is uh, more geared to the general population, but both goods are, book, books are exceptional. You can get them at uh, Irwin I R W I N I-R-W-I-N-Law.com and just um, Google Julian Payne um, and read through the many pages on the, on the, on the website. Uh, but one thing that um, Julian is doing with his co-author, is taking the pain out of marriage breakdown. And uh, I'm sure you've heard that before. So, <laughs> But what I want to do today then is yesterday after we did that general statement of principles, we talked about the multicultural aspects of divorces in Canada. Um, I want to focus in on, uh, on the, the laws concerning children. So just like we did yesterday, Juliet, if you could mind taking some quality time and just um, explain to our listeners how the general rules... Apply to children in Canada nationally and provincially. I know there's many levels on, onto this topic, and I know that you're going to be focusing in on the principle of the best interest of the child, the various statutes that apply, and so on. So I'm going to turn it over to you to give a kind of presentation then on, on that topic.
2: First, as I said yesterday, you've got a dual family law regime in in Canada. You have the provincial regime and the federal regime. The federal family law ma- regime is governed by the Divorce Act. Uh, so if you're dealing with the custody or access to children under the Divorce Act, in a divorce context, either at the time of divorce or after a divorce has been uh, obtained, then in that situation, the first thing you would look at is Section 6, of the divorce act which tells you about what regulates custody uh, disputes in a court of law on or after divorce in a non-divorce situation which might involve a married couple who are not getting divorced but are fighting about the kids um, or it might involve an unmarried couple uh, who are living, as I said yesterday, in a common law relationship and they have children. Uh, in that scenario, you're governed by provincial legislation. Generally speaking, it shouldn't matter too much in a custody or access dispute, what I prefer to call a parenting dispute, uh, but the legislature uh, uh, and Parliament of Canada uh, use the word custody and access with the exception of Alberta uh, that talk about um, something rather different And uh, they talk about parenting orders and contact orders um, but essentially the best interests govern uh, an issue relating to parenting uh, if it goes before the courts um, the Divorce Act stipulates that Uh, it also stipulates a rather important principle which is that of maximum contact and this principle says as a general guideline When you're dealing with a custody dispute, whether one parent is granted primary residential care or not, it's important for the court to generally recognise that the child should have maximum contact with both of the divorcing parents or of the divorced parents. So the maximum contact principle is a fundamentally important principle that you have to bear in mind. The second thing you have to bear in mind under the Divorce Act is the court can order joint custody. They can order the custody be shared uh, by the parents um, not necessarily by equal time um it could be that they will share in decision making and have equal authority there it could be uh, that they will have equal time or very substantial time 60 40 um, um, something to which i refer to again when i deal with child support guidelines um, if you look at provincial legislation as distinct from the Divorce Act, uh, the guidelines with regard to or the, the significance of best interests, is much more uh, fully spelled out. Um, the provincial legislation, unlike the divorce legislation, spells out a number of factors for a court to take into account when it's determining what is in the best interests of a child. Uh, and the lists vary somewhat uh, but they tend to be fairly long lists Um, you will find in Ontario for example section 24 of the Children's Law Reform Act defines specific factors that the court must take into account in determining whether uh, a child's interest will be best served by granting joint custody or by granting sole custody to one parent and access rights to the other Mm. so The provinces provide you with much more guidance than the feds do in their legislation when you're dealing with the best interest of the child. Well, the
1: one thing that comes to mind is I want to go back to some uh, principles here. Uh, We didn't talk about this, but... uh, one of the things I do remember for years, there was a great movement to challenge the very words custody and access, as if one a child was a chattel and somebody has custody, somebody has access. And and I I, I can't actually remember right now. The end result was that it's still there. I thought there was some draft paperwork or papers to change that. So people are moving, you know, to where I don't want to do mid-each, We talk about co-parenting, like you said, or shared parenting, but. Would you mind just talking about those words? Uh, I know they have a legal significance for a lot of reasons, um, but what's your view of that, uh, that, that, that language, if I could call it a debate, or is there still a debate?
2: there's no debate, I think Um, I'm not sure how loud it is in the mid-80s, Judy Ryan who was a mediator out of Toronto uh, did a study uh, on custody for the federal government and she recommended that you should eliminate the terms custody and access I've long taken the same view I I don't think they're useful words um, uh, not least of which because the word custody is ambiguous it's uncertain as to what it means Um, some courts say it means all the powers of a guardian of a, ch- of a child. Other courts say, well, it really means you know, taking t- day-to-day care of the child. Uh, for the most part, the courts take the wider version and treat custody as being equivalent to guardianship. Uh, you enter into considerable problems when you look at the word joint custody. and uh, The word joint custody can mean any number of things. It may mean the parents are jointly responsible uh, for making decisions, major decisions affecting that child's life. Um, that's quite common. A common form of joint custody, particularly in BC, in fact, joint um, guardianship or joint custody orders uh, that provide what sometimes are called joint legal custody, where both mm. parents have equal decision making power, are the norm in British Columbia. Um, Many people, however, use the word joint custody to mean equal time-sharing or substantial time-sharing. So we have to recognise that custody can refer to decision-making authority or it can refer to... Where the child's going to live. And when you add the word joint, you just compound the problems. Mm. And in my opinion, and I said this when I was working for the Law Reform Commission in the early 70s, I was the director of the Family Law Project undertaken by the Federal Law Reform Commission. Uh, and uh, I recommended at that time that we eliminate the phrase custody, mm. uh, and particularly the, the use of the phrase joint custody, um, because it, nobody really knows what they mean. They have to be spelled out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always maintained that if you're dealing with custody, what the lawyers call custody and access, you should spell out what you mean by custody. Who has what authority? Mm-hmm. Where is the authority? Who has residential care rights? Uh, is there a primary parent is a secondary parent I don't like those words either (laughs) uh, because they tend to relegate the secondary parent to to low status Uh, many many years ago a British Columbia court said a parent with access rights that's a non custodial parent with access rights is there as a passive observer Ready to fill the breach should the other parent die. That I think is very graphic explanation of where access was 40 years ago. We've changed since then. Normally, if you're granted access but no custodial rights, now you'll get you'll get to see the child every alternate weekend and also midweek. Uh, maybe overnight, may not be overnight in terms of midweek, depending on the age of the child and school commitments and things of our nature. Uh, and also substantial time to. to in the summer, could be equal time, could be three or four weeks during the summer months uh, when the child is away from school. Mm. So now access is, is you know, fairly generous compared to what it was forty years ago. Forty years ago, you got to see your, your, your child, you know, either on a Sunday afternoon or on a Saturday afternoon, uh, but not both. Uh, so we've made some progress, uh, but I think continuing the words custody and access doesn't serve a useful purpose. I think in any dispute affecting kids, parents should file a parenting plan, whether you're trying to negotiate or mediate the dispute or whether you're litigating that dispute. It should be mandatory. And I said that 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Nobody paid any attention. um, But then lawmakers are slow to me, you know, to act like
1: well, but well, a lot of of, but a lot of your advice and vision from 40 25 years ago are coming to play out so you must feel very fulfilled about that and when you and then um, in the the family uh, Ontario Association for Family Mediation um, in our auto chapter we distinguish with the multidisciplinary approaches for the uh, family professionals um, to put the parenting issues before a parenting counselor and at the courts you know Couples are expected to watch videos and all this stuff. So, I want to open that up into. We have about four or five minutes left in this segment here with Julian Payne on alternative dispute resolution on Shin Radio from Ottawa 97.9 FM. Um, and, Julian, on, um, you talked about 6040. Maybe we can talk about how uh, the child support guidelines work generally. Um, and then in context of family law as a whole, there's a, a spousal support, the difference between spousal support and child support from a tax point of view, calculation point of view, um, and the regime of equalization. So I'm going to ask you to take a few minutes to give some broad principles on that. we come back after the break, we'll go into more detail.
2: Well, let me touch on child support guidelines first. Um, I'll start with one of the basic principles Um If you're separated from your spouse, um, whether you're getting a divorce or not, um, you'll be governed by child support guidelines uh. If you're getting a divorce, the guidelines will be the federal child support guidelines. And incidentally, you can get access to those online if you go on to the Department of Justice Canada. Uh, It provides all sorts of help to people who are going through a divorce in terms of finding out what the basic child support payment will be. The basic child support payment under the guidelines, whether they're federal or provincial, is essentially um, based upon the, pa- the parent's income, and that means the non-custodial parent's income, the parent who does not have the care, primary care of the child will be ordered to pay child support in the ordinary course of events. And that amount of child support is a fixed arithmetical figure to be found in the tables that are just set out in the Federal Child Support Guidelines and also in the Provincial Child Support Guidelines. And it says if you're earning X dollars and you have three children or four children or two children, uh, the, the amount of monthly child support will be Z. Z dollars. Uh, and that's a very simple you know, arithmetical calculation. If you know what the person earns, uh, you can look at that person's income, look at the number of children, and you will see a fixed amount of child support in terms of dollars and cents that are payable per month based upon the non-custodial parent's annual income. And I know that uh, there's not all of,
1: many of us in that category, but over $150,000, it's... Uh a different kind of
2: formula, I understand. Oh, yeah. Over $150,000. You pay the basic table amount on, you know, under for the first $150,000. After that, um, it's up to the court wh- whether to apply a table formula, or whether to exercise its general discretion. I may say, if you're dealing with with persons in that bracket, I find some of the cases uh, bordering on the absurd. <laughs> I mean, when you have an order for child support in the amount of, you know, 20,000 per month and tax three dollars i think that takes some understanding <laughs> and it's an understanding i seem to lack
1: is it, um, is it, it, uh, we have about a minute left before we have to go to break but isn't that um those orders to, uh, based on another principle which is the spells um is supposed to still be entitled to the same kind of lifestyle that they were before the marriage breakup i'm just going to throw that out uh and then um uh, when you answer that question, we'll maybe take a break and come back and get into the other details of child sport.
2: No, if you're dealing with child support in the high income brackets and talking people earn huge amounts of money, um, you're not supposed to confuse it with spousal support. Indeed, they say that when you're exercising a discretion for persons, insofar as their income exceeds $150,000, you do not award it as spousal support. And if you do, it will be set aside by an appellate court. Uh, so theoretically, you know, there's a lot of difference between the two. And uh, spousal support
1: is taxable to by the payer. It's taxable income by the payee, but child support's tax neutral.
2: Okay. Uh, child support uh, is tax neutral. That is to say, if you're paying it, you can't deduct it. If you're receiving it, you don't pay tax on it. Uh, Spousal support is quite different. If it's a periodic amount of spousal support, often a monthly amount of spousal support, and it's made in the context of a court order or or a negotiated agreement, then in that situation, the payor can deduct Mm. the periodic spousal support payments from his or her. Typically, it's his uh, income. The payee must pay... And it's got to be something, the, it's got
1: to be either an agreement or a court order for those rules to come. That to is action. true. Yeah. And what and is true. it has true, to
2: be a written agreement.
1: That's uh, written agreement and what is true is that we're coming back to finish off our amazing show here with Julian Payne after the break. Time for
0: another tin Radio traffic update. No so reports of any problems at all according to the OPP on any of our major routes. Not a bad looking drive on the Queensway as well as the 416 and no recent troubles to pass along from Ottawa Police on our city streets. Discover Riviera and I read with Total Vacation a coastline boasting sophisticated resorts, pristine beaches, and naturally beautiful setting. Visit your travel agent or totalvacations.ca and save up $250. Riviera Nyreep, Mexico's Pacific Treasure. I'm Atal Sperling, and that's the latest traffic on Chin 97.9.
3: For many people, unfortunately, a shelter or the street is home. Staying warm during the Ottawa winter has its challenges, even for those of us who are blessed with warm and friendly homes. Chin Radio 97.9 FM is pleased to assist by providing a drop-off location for hats, socks, and gloves that will be distributed on Christmas Day at a venue in the city that provides a free Christmas dinner for the homeless. Share the warmth of the season by bringing hats, socks, and gloves to our offices at 30 Murray Street, Suite 100, Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Chin Radio 97.9 FM, multicultural radio for a multicultural city. Welcome the Olympic flame on Parliament Hill on Saturday, December 12th. Festivities begin at 5.30 p.m. with performances by Tom Cochran, Gregory Charles, and others. Be part of Olympic history and welcome the final torchbearer, Joe Juno, at 7 p.m. And don't miss the illumination of thousands of Christmas lights. The evening promises to be a magical one with entertainment for the whole family. So remember to join us on the Hill this Saturday. For more information, visit canadascapital.gc.ca.
0: Well, we hope the weather's going to be good for that. It's going to be an exciting day on the hill with the Olympic uh, flame coming to Ottawa. Currently, it's minus 3 degrees. Flurry activity expected our way tomorrow. And they're calling for at least 10 centimeters of snow for Wednesday and perhaps a little flurry activity on Thursday. Expected high for tomorrow afternoon, zero. A little milder than it is right now. Minus 3 at chin, 97.9. Welcome back to our Alternative Dispute Resolution
1: show here live on Chin Radio 97.9 FM from Ottawa, Canada. Heard worldwide over the internet at ChinRadioOttawa.com. And we're back for our final segment here with Julian Payne on family law ADR supporting our children. How does it work? You know it's a vast topic, uh, Julian, we're doing covering a lot of ground in short time. So I want to turn it back over to you to gonna to talk about what you had mentioned, the sixty forty rules, some information in Quebec I would like you to even touch on, especially today with remarriages and everything, when stem parents act in the, the shoes of a parent for their non biological uh, child and then the obligation of the natural father and the step. I know that's a topic all by itself, but I'm sure many listeners uh, uh, are,
2: are exposed to that. So I'm going to turn it back over to you on, on these and any other points that come to your mind. Just to return to child support guidelines in general terms, uh, I talked about the federal guidelines and I talked about provincial guidelines. For the most part, the provincial guidelines are the same as the federal guidelines. There's very little to choose between them. So it doesn't matter whether you're in a divorce situation or a non-divorce situation. You're going to come up with the same numbers uh, and you're going to come up with the same result. Um, Now... There's one exception to that. Quebec has its own system of child support guidelines. Uh, so if you're, if you're living with Quebec, in Quebec and your partner is living in Quebec, you're both in Quebec, then you look to the Quebec guidelines, and they're quite different from the federal guidelines. Um, you may use the federal guidelines, however, if one party is in Quebec and the other party is outside of Quebec, then the federal guidelines want to be applied. Now... Let me say a word about spousal support guidelines. There are some spousal support guidelines, but they are truly guidelines. They are not binding on a court. Uh, They are certainly relevant for uh, for most courts. They look at the guidelines, uh, but they're not binding on the guidelines. Child support guidelines are mandatory. The court has no choice. If the court says, uh, paying you earn X dollars and you've got six children, uh, they'll look in the table and they'll find out how much I have to pay and they'll know if some buts about that. There's no discretion in the court uh, to move away from the table amount in the absence of what is called in law undue hardship. Now, let me turn to the 60-40 situation. Uh, This is... uh, to be found in the guidelines, and the guidelines provide uh, that if you have a parenting situation where the ch- the child is or children are spending at least forty percent of the year with with each parent, then in that scenario, in, scenario, yeah, in that scenario, uh, there are specialised rules. In other words, you don't simply look at the tables. Um, what you do, as a starting point, you look at the table for mom and you look at the table for dad and find out their respective amounts that they would be paying if the other parent had the child all the time Mm -hmm. and then uh, you you look at the the respective amounts payable by mom payable by dad under the tables and you deduct the lower one from the higher one that is the starting point Mm -hmm. beyond that point you then look to see whether increased expenses are being paid as a consequence of the shared parenting regime uh, cause basically, you're going to have perhaps uh, more accommodation than you'd need for mere access. Uh, so, the court will then look at the expenses uh, that are triggered uh, by the, the shared parenting regime. Indeed, they'll look at all the money that's being spent on the children and they'll ask the question well, uh, is each parent paying their fair share? And they may modify the differential between the, between the two table amounts that I mentioned a moment ago uh, by saying, well, we're going to order more uh, than that, or even less. And thirdly, there's an overall discretion in the court to look at the financial circumstances of the parties and say, well... Uh, we know what the differential between the two table amounts is, but we don't think it's appropriate to impose it in this case. The most common situation where that is done is where there's a huge differential between the standard of living in the two homes, because the court may conclude that they do not want a situation where a child is living you know, with a very wealthy dad, uh, in a luxurious situation, uh, and a poverty-stricken mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they may adjust... Uh, the amount payable by dad in that situation so
1: with the um, uh, when you talk about the adjustments you talk to expenses I think there's a thing called section 7 expenses maybe you can explain that a bit to our viewers too
2: now section 7 expenses apply whether whatever type of regime you've got whether it's a shared parenting regime or whether you've got a sole parent uh, prim- one parent primarily responsible for taking care of the child uh, in either event there are some Discretionary expenses that the is typically the custodial parent can seek. Uh, For example, daycare. Mm. This can be added to the basic table amount to which the custodial parent is entitled. Health care costs and expenses, um, post-secondary education for older children mm. yes. you know, who are pursuing university or college studies. Um, so there are a variety of Section 7 expenses. They're called Section 7 because they are found under Section 7 of the, of the guidelines. Uh, and that spells out expenses can, that can be ordered in addition to, that is over and above the basic table amount to which a parent is entitled. Well, you know,
1: um, I know we only have a few minutes left, but uh, uh, I know section seven could be sports and everything. But there's two th- two questions that are uh, you know affect so many families in Canada. One is remarriages and the role of the step parent in terms of what is the how do the courts look at what the biological parent pays as opposed to the step parent? That's 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 one. And and what is the responsibility of of a child who becomes an adult in terms of uh, making their own money and post secondary education. And that, I mean, there's a whole area about that too. So I wonder if you can address those two questions.
2: Well, with regard to step parents, that's governed by a specific provision in the guidelines, and that's section five of the guidelines. And that stipulates uh, the, the bio- basically, the significance behind it, I explained well rather than its content. First, a biological parent continues to be liable to pay the basic amount of child support, the table amount of child support, regardless of whether the step-parent is also called upon to pay. So the biological parent cannot have, typically as a father, his amount reduced simply because there are step-parents that are providing money for this child, either voluntarily or pursuant to a court order or a negotiated agreement. Uh, However, the step-parent, the person who stands in the place of the parent, uh, may have the amount reduced because of the amounts payable by the biological parent. Uh, And that's a matter for the court's discretion. Um, So if you had a a wealthy biological parent and a a person who is a step-parent with modest income, the chances are you would finish up with no support being paid uh, by the step-parent. Uh, not a guarantee, but that's the way the court's be inclined to go. Conversely, if the step-parent has a lot more income than the biological parent, the biological parent will pay the table amount, but then the, the step-parent would pay certainly a top-up amount uh, mm. because of his or her, typically his higher income.
1: Well, one, another sub-question that goes with that quickly, we only have a couple of minutes left, is, is often you have cases where um, the biological parent disappears and years years later, uh, the, the divorce between the step, the new, the new, the stepfather and the and the wife, and and they say, okay, go back now after the biological parent. How far back will the courts go after years of non-collection to make a biological parent? Uh,
2: parent? Well, no, no, two two aspects to that. One is, can you catch up? for the payments that have not been made, can you get a, a retroactive order against a biological parent? And, you know, if, you, if, if, you, if the child's not seen that parent for 20 years, then, then a retroactive order is going to be more more difficult to get, and certainly one running for 20 years would be most unusual because there are restrictions on retroactivity um, as far as the courts are concerned. Um, well, well, as far as
1: I'm concerned, this has been a fascinating uh, Fascinating, Julian. Like we can go on for hours, but I, uh, I, um, I wanted to. We have that's less than a minute left. Could you just share with our. Our listeners, uh, a vision you might have for this area of law for our society in terms of, because if you were talking as a law reform commissioner, uh,
2: philosophically and practically, what would be your advice to our, our lawmakers? Before I do, uh, do that, let me add a writer to what I said a moment ago when I was dealing with the with the biological parent who disappeared off the scene. Uh, once you found him, the court may have found it appropriate to order him to pay future support. Um, but whether he'll be liable for the backlog is another question. Okay. Um, we got about 30 seconds for you. a vision. I think my vision is that we've got to spend far more attention on the process for dispute resolution in family law um, than we have done in the past, and it's true we've we've moved forward in things like mediation, arbitration, parenting coordination, and various options to litigation. Uh, but we've got to move a lot far far further uh, in that direction. I think uh, litigation is only affordable by the very wealthy and the very poor who are on legal aid. Well, you know, I think uh, as a result of this show, I hope that this helps
1: move us forward a little bit more. And thank you very much, Julian Payne, for your usual incredible insight and uh, comprehensive knowledge and plain language explanation of uh, family law, ADR, and in particular now on children. Thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable.
2: Thank you, Arnie.